Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Paul. Uh, we've got two readings this afternoon. The first one is from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 8. It can be found on page 593 of the Church Bible at the back. So remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of adversity come. And the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them, before the sun and the light are darkened, and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain, on the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. The doors at the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades, when one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of a song grow faint. Also, they are afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper loses its spring, and the caperberry has no effect, for the mere mortal is headed for his eternal home, and mourners will walk around in the street before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well, and the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. Second reading is from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 18. It's on page 1003. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly awaits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labour pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, if you want to jump back into Ecclesiastes 12, touch there first. Well, Otto is a sad old man. If you've seen this movie, you know that he is a man who likes order, he likes rules, he likes routine. But really, he wants to live in the past. When things were good, when things were meaningful. Now Otto refuses to live and he spends his life pushing away all human contact and even the cat. In this stunning movie called A Man Called Otto, Tom Hanks, who plays Otto, we uh, travel with him through his last chapter of life. And as he prepares to finish life, we see wonderful moments of image bearers doing the apt thing, 
alongside times when humans do the foolish thing. And in this movie about time, we're confronted by our own mortality. For like Otto, our time ticks down. Well, the teacher in Ecclesiastes takes us on a very similar journey. As Paul read chapter 12, the teacher was inviting us to a time travel across life. I imagine Morgan Freeman doing the voiceover. As there's shimmering light meeting really dark clouds. We see curtains blowing in empty rooms. We see a time lapse of a beautiful tree that goes into blossom, then drops and falls. And we see a mirage of faces, some smiling, some weeping, some pleading, some excited. We see the body of a young man, an athlete, passing the baton to a middle-aged man who then sits beside a white-haired man in a chair, tired and asleep. Life is incredible. Each trip around the sun causes us great joy. But real life endures many nights. It is full of different seasons and then it ends. As you notice the end of the passage, death is utterly shocking. The silver cord snaps. We, like dust, go back to being dust in the earth. The wise person knows that this is unavoidable for all of us. Yes, at the end of chapter 11, there'll be judgment. Yes, we will return to our maker, yet we will all face the end of time. So how do we live wisely as we hurtle towards the end? Well, the teacher knows, as he's been writing to young people in this book, that young people will avoid this question. Because when you're young, life is bright. Life is full of energy. Life is full of opportunity. And our culture is a little bit like a teenager because we thoroughly, we are thoroughly averse to death. We put people who are dying and suffering and old in little places and then avoid looking at it. We play video games where we just kill people and it's like, well, that's all right. And we live as if we can live in the moment and never think about our own death. Yet ignoring this question leads to the foolish life. Instead, we are to come before God seeking wisdom. This has been our prayer through the series, Psalm 90 verse 12. God, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. The wise life is not death ignoring. The wise life is living knowing it's coming. To live wisely means we need to do two things. We need to know when we are and where we're going. One of the best things about living in Orange is the seasons. 
Living in a beautiful place, we get those long, balmy summer days in the middle of summer for a couple of days. <laughs> we then get that explosion of autumn, of colour, stunning colour. And then we head into the mist and the chill and the darkness of winter. And as you drove to church this morning, have you seen the white buds on the trees? That's telling us that spring is coming, hopefully. Now, those seasons, they inform us when we are, and that shapes how we live. When you understand the when, you can live wisely now. So those of you who see the white blossoms go, it's time for boxes of antihistamines to be bought, because <laughs> you know the season. Knowing when you are is key for wise living. Now, I'm not talking about August. I'm not talking about winter. I'm not even talking about 2023. It's all about knowing when you are in God's grand story across time. Because God's grand story goes from point A to point B. We did this two weeks ago. Point A is the creation. Point B is the new creation. And where are we? We are not in creation. We are not in the place where life was ordered and unspoiled. Nor are we in heaven, when life will also be unspoilt and better. No, we live in the middle. That means we live in broken times. That means that in every single part of our life, sin infects it. That is why we get up and we often sometimes feel sick. It's why lots of us are battling with our mental health. It is why our planet is just broken and doesn't work well. It's why every single one of us comes to church tonight with a relationship that's either frictioning or broken. It's why in the backpack of your life are the past stuff that you just carry around. It's why we will all die. You see, we live in broken times. But how do we know that there is even a point B? How do we know that it doesn't just spiral down and down and down? We know because in time God spoke. And it's in your Bible. And he promises to fix the brokenness. But even better than that, 2,000 years ago, God turned up. How do you know God exists? He turns up into a broken world to fix the broken world. On that cross, we talk about every Sunday, Jesus bore the sins of the world and he paid their just punishment. And we get that, don't we? Because we're sinners and we need forgiveness. But there's something even bigger than us going on. Because as you see in Hebrews 2 on the screen, on the cross, he defeated the devil. On the cross, he defeats the power of death. On the cross, he defeats brokenness. And on Easter Sunday, when he rose from the dead, he rose as a victorious king. Where is Jesus? He right now sits in heaven, ruling the universe by his word and spirit. 2,000 years ago, the kingdom of God, the rule of God's good king began. So when are we? Well, we live between the cross and point B. 
We live between the cross and kingdom come, between the God's incarnation in history and the full arrival of the kingdom. And that matters because that means we know we live in broken times, yet we also live in times of new life. We live in times of temptation and forgiveness. We live in times of struggle and spirit-led victory and assurance. And so we come to church at four this afternoon, either waiting for our judgment by God or waiting to inherit the kingdom. And if you're a Christian, you are waiting for the kingdom. You are waiting for Jesus to return. But where are we going? I teach SRE. And uh, you get the heaven question every three or four weeks. And they have such crazy views of heaven, right? You kind of go harps into clouds with some never-ending chocolate. Work that out, right? (laughs) And it's kind of a cartoon picture of heaven. Where are we going? And actually, the more Christians I chat to, the more I find that Christians have a cartoon picture of heaven that we kind of get a bit of Simpsons mixed with a bit of Marvel and we kind of work out heaven. No wonder it's so disappointing. I don't want to go to that. You know, the Bible doesn't talk of it like that. Heaven is not a cartoon world in the Bible. The Bible's really clear. It's a new creation. It's a physical world where there'll be no ongoing rebellion, no frustration, no brokenness. If we just go to the next slide, Revelation chapter 21 is wonderful. It will be a sinless, painless, deathless, perfect place with the living God and each other, where everyone treats Jesus as king. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul describes it as Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit. And that's really important because how Jesus was raised physically with a new, glorious, resurrected body is the pattern for us. You and me will get a new, physical, glorious body. Now, I get it when you're 15, you think, I can't get much better than this, right? (laughs) But once you're 16, you go, I could definitely get much better than this. Like, you know that the body gets progressively worse. You're getting a new body. Glorious. Isaiah 60 is a wonderful place to spend your quiet times this week. Because in Isaiah 60, God paints a picture of his new creation. He describes it as families gathering around the table where there is always enough food for everyone. You know, there's going to be no poverty in heaven. There's going to be a creation that sings and worships from the depths of our hearts. And there'll be no anxiety about borders. There'll be nobody trying to get over into the UK, which is happening all the time at the moment, and dying. Because there's going to be room for everyone who trusts Jesus. No more violence. No more depression. No more divorce. No more funerals. That's point B. That's where 
we're going. In the 19th century, humanity decided we couldn't do time as vibe anymore. We needed to have minutes and seconds. And so in 1833, the Greenwich Observatory near London installed this building with a big orange ball. It's called the Timing Ball. And at 1pm every single day, it would rise to the top and every ship in the Thames would look and go 1 o'clock. They would synchronise their watches. Same thing was happening in America and France, which was building railways everywhere. They realised that if you had trains going in two different directions on the same railway track, you better really have a good timetable that works. Over the next 41 years, the world debated what would be ground zero. Where would we measure time from as a planet? And they took 41 years to finally vote that Greenwich would be the prime meridian. The world would look to Greenwich and measure their time. As Christians, one of the defining features of us is that we keep time differently. We are future people, not today people. And so our timing ball is not what we can get done tomorrow. It's not our HSC. It's not getting married. It's not retiring. It's not whatever. It is the return of Jesus. We don't keep time like our friends at work. We keep time to the return of Jesus. And that future shapes our life now. And it's all through the Bible. But here's an example, 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for the day of the Lord and hasten its coming. What Peter is saying there is every single morning when you put your clothes on, you are metaphorically putting on the appearance of someone who will fit perfectly into heaven. So why do we do good works and godliness? Because that is what we will do for eternity. I love the Lord's Prayer. Because Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. It's a prayer that I know many of you pray every morning. And what it does is it recognises we're not there yet. Many of you pray the last verses of the Bible. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. It's a prayer that says, please, Jesus, come and rescue us from this broken world. Come and give us more of what you have already given us and give it to us forever. You see, Christians keep time differently. We are waiting people. Not passively. It's not like we stand here and wait for a kettle to boil, right? No, no. We wait actively. Going to work, going to school, shaped by our future. Expectations make a big difference, don't they? We all go into a work with expectations or a marriage or a family or school and we have expectations and they determine whether we feel happy or sad. 
Well, we live in a culture right now that overpromises and underdelivers. No wonder people are disillusioned. For example, if we are told to look inside to find peace, we will always feel empty. In contrast, God gives us clear expectations for life that comes from knowing when we are and where we're going. Where are we? We are after the victory of Jesus at the cross. Where are we going? We're going to see him in the new creation. And that is Paul's point in Romans 8, our second reading. See what Paul says? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. It's a wonderful picture of the tension that we must have when we have clear expectations of life now. What that means is we live today completely forgiven. We are spirit-filled, yet we live in a world and in a body that is still impacted and infected by sin. We live in a time of suffering, of the birth pains before the glory. I love what Paul says in verses 19 and 20. He talks about the creation. What is creation doing right now? It is groaning out to God, saying, when God will you release us from the sins of humanity? And what's the Spirit doing? Well, he is inside us, helping us to also pray. In whatever season you are in, the Spirit helps you groan in prayer as you wait for your adoption and your new bodies. Romans 8 says, we have an incredible, certain hope, but we're not there yet. That means our expectations need to be clear. We should expect suffering in our world. Our bodies will hurt and break down. There will be pluralism. There will be deep disagreement between the people of God and the people of the world because we are living side by side with very different visions of life. We also don't expect God to take us back to the good old days when everyone loved going to church because we are not backward-looking people We are forward-looking people. We're not progressives. We do not expect life to get better and better because humans can socially engineer us into a better world. No, no, we've got a robust view of ourselves. We are incredibly made by God, yet we are sinful and fragile. We know the new creation is God-created, not self-made. And as Christians, we're not escapists. We don't come to church going, oh God, please take us somewhere else. Please, please God, take us somewhere else. No, we're not escapists. We know where we're living. We know where we're going. So we live with hopeful impatience. Completely clear on our hope, but we are impatient in a good way. 
So we pray and labour for a world that looks more like the just flourishing kingdom we long for. We love our neighbours. We feed the poor. We show people love with words and actions. And we're real busy. We're real busy not making little heavens for ourselves. No, we're real busy helping people come into the kingdom because we know if they don't trust Jesus, they will go to their judgment and hell. And we live every day with a clear, certain hope. Whether our bodies are breaking or they're going at 100% power. We've got our eyes on our timing ball, the return of Christ. Now, what were some of the habits you learnt when you were younger? Lots of you are older than 16. You've been taught many a habit. Well, one that my mum drilled into me as a kid was that when I'm talking to an adult, I needed to look them in the eyes. I have that little reminder every Sunday. Our teacher has a habit he wants us to practice. See it there in chapter 12, verse 1 of Ecclesiastes. Back to Ecclesiastes 12, 12 verse 1. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. It's a habit. Because when we're young, life is full of energy, life's full of opportunity. It's a gift from God. Yet it is the perfect season to getting into the habit of remembering that we are handmade, not self-made. That I am a dependent creature whose every single breath is a gift from God. I might get 80 years of breath, I might get 17 years of breath, and every single one of them is a gift. The habit of remembering your creator helps you fight the delusion that we are self-made. When your body starts to break, thinking you're self-made doesn't work anymore. I have a good friend, a sister in Christ, who every morning she gets out of the shower and her mirror is foggy and she writes on her mirror with her finger, created, not self-made. We remember our creator when we get into the habit of resting. Sounds weird, doesn't it? Rest is a waste of time, right? Lunch is for wimps. Yet our creator made his creatures to work and rest. Do you know that he made us to spend a third of our life doing nothing but laying on a bed? Very inefficient of God. But look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 2. God rested. Was he tired? Why did he rest? Well, you know what he did? God's rest, he stopped doing something, creating, so he would have the time to do something else. Enjoying his creation, walking through the garden with his people. See what rest is? It's not sitting on the couch, playing on your phone and playing Xbox. That is not rest. Biblical rest is stopping doing something so you can do something else. And that something else is remembering your creator, relating to him and enjoying him. Rest was so important to Israel 
that God embedded it in their daily, weekly life by giving them the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day when for an agricultural culture, they had to stop work. That has implications when what you grow is what you eat. But God says, you can trust me. For a whole day, you can trust me that I've got you. Even though every nation surrounding Israel didn't trust him. Now, whilst Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath law, and that means you do not and will not ever get judged for having a Sabbath, the pattern hasn't changed. The creation pattern is still there. That God made us to work like God, he made us to rest like God as we wait for the coming of Jesus. Now, the habit of rest is essential if we want to live wisely. If we are frenetically busy, we will subtly or not so subtly assume that everything depends on us. We will forget our creator. Fail to rest and we will be too convinced of our own importance and more than a little foolish. A life without rest will mean you'll get sick. You will snap at people and you will get angry at God. Frantic busyness is often the refusal to trust and depend on God. We're heading to an eternal rest. I love how the Bible does that. We are heading to an eternal rest of an unspoilt relationship with God in the new creation. That's where we're going. So taking time to rest is actually an expression of hope. Taking time to sit at Jesus' feet every morning is the better thing because it's an expression of hope. Taking time to sleep, exercise, play games, gather with people is an expression of hope. Taking time to rest, make sure that you build the habit of remembering your creator in every day of life. We've seen tonight that Christians keep time differently. But what we know is that we are so often drawn to keeping time with the rest of orange. So we fall into living in the moment and we forget where we're heading. That's why coming to church is the most important thing you do every week. Coming to church, it's not a law. Don't have to be here. Coming to church is not a good deed. You are not more loved by God if you come to church. No, no, coming to church reminds you when you are and where you're going so you can keep time. Hebrews chapter 10, 24 to 25 says it perfectly. Let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's magnificent, isn't it? We are all heading towards our new creation with God. We gather together to help us keep time. 
And so every Sunday we gather together to encourage each other to walk with a timing bell of Jesus. That's why we sing the same songs over and over again. It's why we often read the same Bible passages over and over again, because we are being reminded of our creator and sustainer. And then every single Sunday, we repent of our sins. We corporately bow before God and say, we are fallen. We are not perfect. And we need Jesus as our only saviour. And then as Sue Ellen prayed, we petition the God of the universe for everything. Because only he can fix brokenness. Only he gives us hope. And together we look forward to his kingdom coming. And we ask Jesus to help us keep going. You see, when we stop our work and we put aside our hobbies and we gather together on a Sunday afternoon, we are reminding each other how brilliant our future is. What we have now in part, we're going to have it in full. We remind ourselves that life is not just about me and my dreams and my needs and my my goals. No, no, we turn up and we say, you're important. Because Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for the young and old, men and women, every ethnic group, the married, the single, the divorced, the able, the disabled. Grace for everyone. And when you drove out of your driveway this afternoon, you were testifying to your neighbour that you live for something far more important than your work. You live for something more important than your sport. You live for something more important than dancing, your gardening, your house, your health, even your family. We live as people who are citizens of heaven and we are waiting for our Saviour to return. Let's pray. Father God, Teach us to number our days carefully so that we may have wisdom in our hearts and live wisely in time. Amen.